alive and kicking with Claire McKenna. This is News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking in newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, Dr. Joshua Woolrich is author of Food Is Not Medicine, and in it he talks about the turnaround he made on how he views dieting, weight loss, and why now his life's work and personal view has changed to health at every size. It's so interesting to start to hear this take from a medical doctor. And today we're going to talk about diet culture and how there are so many more nuances to why we carry weight. And Dr. Catherine Kelly has been a university lecturer for 25 years, her key interests being in geography and wellness. And she combines the two in her book, Blue Spaces, a look into why so many of us feel drawn to water and what it is about water that makes us come back to ourselves. So what kind of health and wellness week did I have? Well, it was a mad week, lots of work and running around, but actually it's been really good to be busy. The less time you have to ruminate, the better, I say. But I have had a few nights where I've been at the laptop till nine and beyond, getting into bed, trying then to read a book for work and falling asleep with it in my hands. And I have felt that my sleep has not been the best because of that. Now, Sometimes life doesn't give you the luxury of a decent wind down and a sleep routine. But if you are someone who regularly sits working until late and you're wondering why you're tired all the time, maybe like me, you should make the correlation between the two and try to at least get a couple of work screen free evenings. I do plan on prioritising that far more this week. And again, I'm feeling more and more like myself as the weeks go by, which is great because there were times where I wondered if I ever would again. I think it's a combination of readjusting to the new flow of work being back and new projects on the go, taking more time to eat well. I've been consistently exercising and sleep, which I've admitted could have been better. But I think that all adds up, as you know, but when... When you're low, all that seems to go out the window. I don't know why, but it does. Um, But I also attribute a large amount to the ability to meet up with friends and family with so much less stress involved. I think finding joy and connection is such an important part of wellness. And we were stripped of that for so long. I had a lovely family christening last weekend and sitting with just a few family and friends in a back garden Catching up with a glass and a plate of food while kids ran around was absolute bliss and I was in my element. So I hope that whatever you're doing this weekend, you find some joy too. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. And the winner of the Fitbit Versa with thanks to the great pink run from last week is Anne Dunn from Bundoran. So congratulations to you, Anne. Well, may you wear. Dr. Catherine Kelly has been a university lecturer for 25 years. Her key interests include geography and wellness, and she combines the two in her book, Blue Spaces, a look into why so many of us feel drawn to water and what it is about water that makes us come back to ourselves. Catherine is on the line now. Hello, Catherine. Hello, Claire. How are you? So we are drawn to blue spaces, but what drew you to this topic in the first place? I am... As I said uh, in the introduction there, I've been a geography lecturer for a long time. So water and landscape is something that has been part of my professional life and and teaching for a long time. Um, And then particularly being drawn to to blue space in a personal context, you know, like many people, it's always been there and a great love. But I did lose my mum very suddenly and tragically when she was 47 to an unexpected brain hemorrhage. 
And I was living in London at the time, you know, sort of my early 20s. And I was given an opportunity to take up an academic post in the west of Ireland. And I travelled to Mayo for the interview and I hadn't been there before, um, to my shame. But I just knew that sort of day before when I went for a look around that standing on the Atlantic coast in Mayo was where I needed to be to kind of get over that sudden shock and the grief. And it just felt very soothing and very calming and very healing. So, yeah, that's where it came in a personal context. And that was very, very, yeah, very, very good for me. It really helped. And it wasn't, I suppose, until some years later that I got into the whole, what we know now, the research on the relationship between nature, water and and our own well-being that I could put sort of academic words to it. Well, we get into those in a moment because that's fascinating. But tell me about wellness and you. When did you begin to move more into that space as an academic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Well, I have always had an interest in that. But when I moved from the west of Ireland, uh, when I'd finished working there for six, seven years, um, you know, I think like a lot of people probably listening to your program, I was really interested in yoga and meditation and various sort of alternative therapies and treatments. And when I was expecting my first son, um, I started doing a degree in stress management part-time um perfect timing yeah yeah. he was due actually just as I was writing my my final dissertation and um yeah so so I did I got a BSc in stress management because I, I started to become really interested in wellness as a research topic so you know, a, a colleague, friend and I used to go off to India on yoga retreats, you know, inverted commas, like researching what was happening, participant observation, of course. Uh, and then we wrote up some papers about retreats and the need to retreat and so on, particularly for women. So that was way back in 2006, actually, before all of this was as common as it is now. Um, And I didn't want to be somebody who just wrote clever papers about things that didn't feel right, given my personal interest in the subject. So I did my degree in stress management and then I did uh, mindfulness training, so practitioner training, and then I specialised in work with children. Um, So I run a programme in the UK called Chill Squad um, and I've also run training sessions in Dublin and in in the UK, teaching um, anyone who works with young people about mindfulness for children. And nature is really big for kids. Uh, I'm luckily that I live in in Brighton. I work here in the University of Brighton now, and I'm able to bring children to the sea and families and adults. And and we do lots of kind of mindfulness-based, blue space work, which brings together all the things that I love. Um, So I've I've carved out something that really works for me and fits all my needs together. And we've had an insight into it based on the things you've just said there. But wellness and well-being has become such an overused notion. And and you discuss that a little bit in the book. What does wellness mean to you? Wellness to me is balance, really. You know, if you're able to balance your body, mind and whatever soul or spirit means to you. Um, I think that's the essence of, of what wellness is. Um, and it's, as you said, it's it's very, very sort of contested and, and overused now, maybe in 
in a very marketized way. Um, and I think it is an individual thing. I'm somebody, for example, who tends to live a lot in my mind, I think, because um, I have to use my brain a lot for work. And I can often, like many people, overthink things and overanalyze things. And so I find particularly for me, getting into the water brings me into my body very much, which I need, you know, to, to stop that happening. Um, and I think spiritual, soulful kind of existential side of, of wellness comes a lot to us naturally when we're out in nature or by water. So for me, it's bringing those three together and not letting one sort of get away from you. Um, yeah. Yeah different way you know being too much in your mind maybe and I love um the five ways to well-being the concept that you highlight in the book by the new economics foundation connect yeah. be active take notice keep learning and give and like there's no mention there of green juices there's no mention there of weight training there's no mention there of meditating for hours on end and that's not to demonize any of those things but I think we forget about those very simple little things that really add up to that overall balance, as you say, and none of them are necessarily making you feel like you're less than already. No, exactly. Those five things are so important, you know, and if you're not, if you're not growing, if you're not giving, if you're not connecting, then, you know, you could be following all the regimes in the world. But um, I think you have to go back to those those simple kind of connectors and and for me again water does that you know it's it connects you to yourself it can connects you to your environment and it connects you to other people as well in a, in a quite a social and community-based way um and the lovely seabirds group that i'm a member of here in brighton it's a social enterprise and you know there's fundraising it's a non-profit organization and any fundraising goes into bringing members of society or community to the sea that wouldn't necessarily otherwise have access to it. So that's a lovely thing. You know, there's mm. there's giving with a small G and there's giving with a, a big G <laughs> in some ways. And we give to each other as well. And we, you know, we look after the sea that looks after us. And, you know, I think it's really sort of symbiotic, that whole relationship. And it doesn't have to be, you know, constructed as you said through diets or external organizations really it's quite a simple formula and I got to experience that myself firsthand it's one of the things I'm, I'm grateful to the pandemic for that I took the time I'm from a beautiful coastal town in Hoth in County Dublin and I took the time to go out and get into the sea and it was the only way I, I met a handful of people was was on the beach and not only was the getting into the water and the feeling the cold and taking in the beauty of what was around me and then coming out and having that chat on the beach and that how did you get on connection. Yes. It was one of the most magic pieces I had during all that time and not only did, was it really beneficial but I still crave that now. There's a bit, a bit of a kickback I certainly find here in Dublin and, and I get it because it, it feeds into that less than a little bit when people get a bit all holier than thou about how amazing sea swimming is and they've got the dry robes mm -hmm. on and they've got the keep cups and I, I, I get it. Is it the same in Brighton? Or do, is there a sort of a, a click with the with the sea swimmers that some aren't as, as into as others? Um, I don't think it's as bad from what I hear Um. In Dublin. In Dublin, I think it happened very suddenly and very quick, didn't it? Mm. Um, my 
is in Brighton. I mean, Brighton is the home of uh, Richard Russell from the 1700s. He was this first guy who wrote a book on the power of seawater for the glands or some other exciting title. It was a terrible title. But it was looking at that kind of history of, yeah, so bringing in like the Victorians and stuff coming down to take the seawater. That was, that's been part of the history here. So there's always been a fairly strong cohort of hardy people in the sea but but like um dublin it has exploded so our seabirds went from about 50 people to 3000 in in lockdown or in the last two years and you know what though claire i don't really buy into that kickback about dry robes and cups and so on i i find a lot of the criticism for that can be quite gendered and a lot of people who go cold water swimming um are often women of a certain age and it's you know, it's very joyful to find something that works for you, that you have time for, that's free and that's social and supportive. And quite frankly, I don't care what anybody wears. You know, um, you see lots of, of people wearing sports kit or the right trainers or whatever in other sectors to make themselves feel better or like they belong or fit in or whatever it might be. So sometimes, you know, there's a little bit of anxiety or fear behind anybody who feels like they have to buy the right kit to, to feel part of something. Yeah. You know, there'd be a small yeah. element showing off, but equally, I don't, I don't care, you know, neither does the sea care what you wear so long as you get into it and it does something for you. I would really advocate the, the non-striving, non-judging aspect of, of sea swimming. And for anyone who criticizes it, you know, just have a look at, you know, what joy it brings to people. Um, yeah. And I think that's the main thing. Yeah. And I think you're right. Leaving striving and judgment at the door is also very important for our wellness. So, look, let's get into it a little bit deeper then, the, the blue spaces and the part they play in our well-being. Why are we attracted to water? Can you talk a little bit about place attachment, emotional geography and therapeutic landscapes? Yeah, sure. Well, therapeutic landscape is a, our landscapes is a, is a phrase that we use to basically describe places that make us feel well or make us feel better. It came from a, an American sociologist called Will Gessler, and he originally started looking at healing places like Lourdes and so on, often water driven as well. Um, but human geographers and, and sociologists have started to use this phrase a bit more to talk about all places that make us, you know, feel well. So I use that phrase very much in connection with blue spaces, which can be the sea, the ocean, rivers, lakes, fountains, even your own bath or shower. It's water um, that gives us that feeling. And, you know, place attachment is a phrase we use to, to you know, can you remember your favourite family holiday as a child? It would probably more than likely involve water of some sort or your favourite beach. Even now, do you have a spot in Hoth or wherever you live, whoever's listening, that you like to, to sit at, to watch the water? Is it a place that makes you feel calm or that you can go to in your mind's eye? So place attachment is this kind of memory and legacy and you don't even have to be there to feel well you can remember being there which is why you know holidays by the sea for example our photographs maybe our our social media pictures and so on that have popped up have kind of kept us going a bit during lockdown I know they have for me um 
Yeah, so that's that's this kind of idea of emotional geographies, the feelings that come up when we think about certain places. And, and I also water think plays a really strong, strong role in that. Yeah, I also think it's almost like a state of mind. That's certainly something I found going around the beauty spots within my 5K or whatever it was. And, and realising that sometimes I was just allowing myself on holidays to really get into a nice walk or to really sit and look at the coast while I'm having my dinner or whatever it is. Whereas there is lots of that beauty right on your own doorstep if you take a minute to take it all in. It is about putting yourself in that state of mind. And you, you do also talk in the book about some principles and practices for how we can embrace blue spaces, things like mindfulness on a paddleboard um and i you're, you're keen to stress that and i think it came up when we were discussing the sea swimming you don't have to have all the gear you don't have to live by, beside the, the caribbean this you don't have to be an olympic swimmer it doesn't have to be huge it can be really small it's about the impact it has on you Exactly, exactly. I mean, honestly, in, in the book, I talk about, you know, John Kabat-Zinn's seven uh, principles of mindfulness, and I apply them to water. So that, for me, is the essence of it. And you know what, whoever's listening, wellness for some people is physical fitness, in which case there's lots of like, outdoor swimming clubs out there who quite happily you know record your times and your distance and so on and and if that makes you feel good then go for it my own personal position on this is about you know finding something that makes you feel well regardless of it being sort of competitive with yourself or others you know so non-judging your body yourself your ability um patience to build up your tolerance maybe to cold water um the idea of beginner mind so that if you do have a bad experience one day that you can start fresh another day you know there's often a day where you might be tumbled by a wave and and lose your nerve but you know beginner mind is a great way of giving yourself another chance and and trusting in the water as well you know it's a big thing to allow ourselves even to float, isn't it? We have to trust in that element in the water. Um, and non-striving is a big one for me. You know, don't compare yourself to somebody else's body size, shape or age. You are where you are. Uh, and that's really important. And you know what? The water accepts all of us. When we're in the water, you can only see people from the neck up. Um, and, and that doesn't matter. You know, you just, as you said, take what you need out of it. So important. Um, and don't be comparing yourself to how fast or how far anybody else swims. You know, I often swim, you know, parallel to the coast. We have groins here in Brighton. So groin to groin. Many people will swim way out to the boys and the first boy or the second boy. But, you know, that that is not for me. The water gives you the benefit it doesn't know how long you're in for or how deep you went or how far you went well look Catherine it sounds like you and I are kindred spirits maybe if you're heading off on one of these trips to India again will you will you take me with you you're right up my street by the sounds of things and there are so many other elements to the book that of course we didn't have time for but I would highly recommend it the book is called Blue Spaces How and Why Water Can Make You Feel Better Dr Catherine Kelly thank you for coming on thank you so much Claire Coming up after the break, Dr. Joshua Woolrich on how food is not medicine and the 180 he did on weight loss. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Welcome back to Alive and Kicking. 
Dr. Joshua Woolrich is author of Food Is Not Medicine and in it he talks about the turnaround he's made on how he views dieting, weight loss and why now his life's work and personal view has changed to health at every size. And Joshua joins me on the line now. Hello, how are you? Hello, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. How are you? I'm very good indeed and excited good. to talk through this topic with you because sadly it is slightly new, this new way of us talking about weight loss and mm. diet culture. But it is starting to happen more often, which I think is is exciting. So can we start with where you start the book, your personal story with your relationship with food and weight loss? Yeah, so I mean, I, well, how long do you have? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll try and give you the um, uh, the the condensed version. But uh, I I grew up, as you can probably tell from my accent, relatively uh, middle class and and comfortable. Um, and I didn't really think that I had much of an issue when it came to food or eating or anything along those kind of lines. Um, but uh, as I've kind of explored some of this stuff more recently, and I've kind of uh, come to understand what a relationship with food is I've then come to realize some of the things that that had come up in my past I mean I, I grew up in a um, in a household with with an alcoholic father um, and uh, from time to time he would get drunk to the extent where he would forget to feed us dinner or he would think that he had and so that that was when I was kind of a as a teenage boy and I took it upon myself to 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 make sure that I never went without food because you know as a teenager that I wasn't really I didn't think that I should be be um be standing for that, but again, someone with not that much money at the time, I resorted to uh to to stealing food. So I ended up stashing food away in my bedroom. Ended up eating um uh, things like Pringles and other things, and then having dinner again. My mum got home and ended up growing up with this element of food insecurity, where food was something that I then used to control. Um, my my insecurities around my lack of control at home, my lack of control with my family, um, and it ended up being something that I that I had relied on and something that became maladaptive, um, and it ended up being a, a reason why I put on weight as a kid and and a reason why I then got bullied for my size moving on. Um, it's it's given me um, a, a bit of a perspective as to just how complex these conversations truly are and and uh, uh, something that often gets completely overlooked when people are talking about weight loss and weight gain. Um, and that's just kind of one example as to as to why these things aren't so simple as just, well, you just need to eat less and move more. And then, you know, that's the magic solution to, to this problem. Um, so, yeah, it's it's um it's it's a it's it's a long one. I'll put it that way. Yeah, and you you talk in the book as well about privilege, which we're, we're talking about more and more as well. Mm. That people like you or I were privileged that we earn money to allow us to buy fresh food. We have time to cook. That's not always the way for people either. And I, I don't think in the discussion on weight loss. There is a huge discussion around the socio-economic reasons that may lead people to find it hard to eat less and move more. No, not at all. And I think it's just it's really important to, to make sure with any of these kind of conversations as well that weight loss itself isn't and I don't, I don't believe should be the goal when it comes to health. And too often we think of this as as weight loss is what is going to make someone healthier. Um, and that that is often not the case. Um, but putting that to one side, uh, yeah, the, these conversations around 
any sort of method of weight loss because obviously we get sold a new one every every two seconds um none of these conversations take into account just how complex our lives truly are and just how complex our health is um and socioeconomics is just one of those of those pieces to the puzzle that that makes these conversations um necessary to have with a lot of nuance and people don't like that because it means that these things are complex and they're not straightforward and they're not black and white um but it means we need to start acknowledging that actually our health is very very difficult to predict and our health is very difficult to control and when we start thinking we can control our health um be that related to our weight or be that something else we end up in these situations where our choices are driven by things like shame and guilt and you add on the the um the impact of socioeconomics and poverty onto that and you end up in this situation where it's lots of privileged individuals giving advice about something they have absolutely no experience and no knowledge in but they're giving this advice with so much confidence um and it's this undue confidence that that I once had um and it's this this undue confidence that I see on a daily basis in, in with with people online and people you know in person um and i i do think we need to start talking about that kind of stuff a lot more yeah you you talk about food inequity and one of the facts which took me a minute to digest is the poorest 10% of uk households based on the fact that this is obviously where where you live so that's where the statistics come from but i'd mm. imagine in the western world i wouldn't say it's too different here uh, next door so 10% of UK households would need to spend 74% of their disposable income to meet the Eat Well guidelines. And to put that into context, you're talking about families that sometimes can be working two jobs, that can be single parent families. So not only is there time issues to cooking fresh, healthy and in inverted commas food, but also the cost comes into what you're able to throw into your trolley or grab. Yeah, I mean, people like to 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 talk about how food is cheap and we don't need to worry about it and how people are making excuses. That's just complete and utter nonsense. Fresh vegetables, fresh fruit is far more expensive than than processed microwave meals and and ready meals. And again, th- those meals are okay, and there's nothing wrong with them in the context that they are sustenance, and for some people that keeps them alive, and that is absolutely great. But when they start being demonized under this guise of, well, you should just be able to, to, to buy something else. You should just be able to do this. It's just, as I said before, it just increases this guilt and shame and it's not even accurate. Um, something that I, that, that I find um, fascinating in, 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 a, in a kind of a heartbreaking way as well is the fact that there are so many people, there are millions of people in the UK that don't own a fridge and there are millions of people in the UK that don't own a freezer. So even if they could... Money, you know, monetarily afford to go and buy fresh vegetables, it gets a bit pointless when those veg can't be kept more than a few days because they don't own a fridge, and none of these things get taken into account when people are when people are throwing out recipes. And you know, I'm sure you you see it all the time. It's these oh look look at this magical meal plan that I'm going to propose to you if you just follow it, and it's your choice. If you don't follow it, then that's your choice and it's your fault. It, none of this is is accurate, and and unfortunately, a, a lot of doctors are, are 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 portraying this kind of message as well from a place of complete ignorance and complete lack of understanding, with no real um, experience in these kind of in these kind of settings and these kind of topics. 
Well, you're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna, and I'm talking to Dr. Joshua Woolrich, NHS surgical doctor and author of Food Isn't Medicine. So, Joshua, you were on that trajectory of weight loss and you started an Instagram page, as many do, for accountability on, Mm. you know, eating well and losing weight called at unfattening. And tell us a little bit about when the tide began to turn and when you began to to change your your mind a little. Yeah, well, I thought it was accountability. Let's get one. Let's get one thing straight to, to start. It was it was accountability through shame. That I that I considered to be a valid method of keeping me in what I saw as kind of the straight and narrow, which was incredibly problematic. Whenever we try and encourage behaviours, be that in somebody else or be that in ourselves, through guilt, shame, that that kind of method is just incredibly harmful. It doesn't work. I'm sure you can think of examples in your own life. I'm sure you can think of examples in friends' lives or families' lives. That kind of stuff is incredibly problematic and really dangerous. And it led me down a path of of um, uh, justifying really disordered eating behaviors, really dangerous eating behaviors that could very, very have easily tripped over into eating disorders um, because I was just pursuing this this magical goal of weight loss that I thought I needed to pursue at all costs. Um I was really fortunate that I came across people who started challenging my way of thinking. Um, I, medical school and and medicine in the Western world is very much taught in a, in a weight-centric manner, meaning that weight is seen as the be-all and end-all of someone's health, and it's seen as something that should often be addressed as part of anybody's well-being. Um, but I, I came across people who were talking about healthcare in a weight-inclusive manner, meaning that actually we can talk about health without putting weight on a pedestal we can talk about health promoting behaviors without them having anything to do with with weight and actually many argue and and now so do i that we should be doing that without having weight as part of the conversation things like exercise if we're always making exercise about weight loss then it only becomes um, something that we have the encouragement to do if we're seeing what we think of as results on the other end. Um, and exercise is so much more important than that. You can take up a, you know, an exercise program, you can take up a sport, your weight can change absolutely nothing, not, not one bit, but you have still improved your health. And th- this is what we're missing in a lot of these kind of conversations. Um, so I was really, really grateful to come across people, dietitians, nutritionists, other doctors who were talking about health from a health at every size lens and, and, and healthcare from a health at every size lens where we should be challenging these, the, the, this rhetoric and these assumptions that our weight is something that needs to be changed or needs to be addressed. And actually, we can focus on health. This isn't something where we're just a lot of people would kind of try and push back on that just be like oh well you're just you know you're being in quotes woke or you're you're just being nice to people or you're being you know politically correct it's got nothing to do with that it's actually about pursuing health and actually health because the thing is is we don't actually do that a lot we pursue weight loss and we justify that by calling it health but they're not they're they are just not the same thing well, Joshua, will, we, will you stay on the line because we're going to take an ad break and when we come back, we'll delve into this health at every size and how your weight does not define your health a little bit more. Sure. You're listening to Alive and Kicking here on News Talk, and I'm talking to Dr. Joshua Woolrich, who is author of a book called Food is Not Medicine, Challenge Nutribolics and Escape the Diet Trap. Uh, we'll get into Nutribolics in a moment, Joshua, but hmm. before the break there, 
we were talking about health being at the centre of of medical study or when you arrive that weight is an indicator of your health and in the book Hmm. you really delve into the idea that your weight does not define your health and it's really sad to hear that there's lots of people who aren't receiving the medical care they need because the only symptom that's being viewed is the size they are. Hmm. Well this this is a this is an absolutely huge issue and it's one that really isn't being addressed because we're 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 so blinded to this to 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 the fact that our weight may not define our health as medical professionals that we just can't get over that um and it's something that i'm i'm fighting to try and change and we we are seeing we are seeing small changes um within within the nhs and, and also globally but it's it's taking some time because this stuff is so ingrained um, be that be that um, it, when you see things that are stigmatizing towards people of a larger size, you know, on TV and adverts online and you're growing up, it's not just healthcare, but then healthcare comes along and, and propagates a whole bunch of it as well. The issue that we have is we that there is an element to where our weight can impact our health, but that is not the same as saying that it defines our health. And there are lots and lots of things that impact our health because our health is complex. It is incredibly complicated. Um, But what we do is we focus on one aspect and we put it on a pedestal and we believe that it is the only thing that is going to fix the problems that we think we have at that moment in time. And 99% of the time that ends up resorting back to weight loss. And that's either from healthcare professionals themselves or that's just because that's what we believe we should be doing. And again, some of that comes from society, some of that comes from healthcare, but that tend, that that causes a lot of problems. One one perfect example, and this happens an awful lot, far more than than a lot of us would be willing to acknowledge. I have a friend um, in in California who went to her doctor with with abdominal pain, and she'd been experiencing pains on and off for quite a long time, um, and it's it had got so bad that she wasn't able to eat anymore because every time she tried to eat, she got this excruciating pain. She went to her doctor and she, she um, you know, would, would meet a, a category on the BMI scale that, that means that her doctor would automatically tell her to lose weight. Um, and when she got into the consultation, the doctor said to her, well, maybe that's not such a bad thing when, when she told him that she couldn't eat because of the pain. And he was insinuating that, you know what, why don't you make the most of the pain at the moment? Because that will help you lose weight if you're not eating. There are so many things wrong with that. It is absolutely unbelievable. But just to to highlight that, she ended up being diagnosed with colon cancer and she's undergone surgery and chemotherapy. and, And fortunately, she's doing very, very well. But this happens on a daily basis where symptoms are not taken seriously because people assume that weight is the issue and that's just a drastic example but it it goes on every single day and it is causing healthcare to be given in a really detrimental fashion to larger people Um, and it has to be addressed and it has to stop. And we as a society are fat phobic because we're given that message so many times that weight loss is so important and one body ideal is heralded as the light at the end of the tunnel. And you're right, it's equated with good health, whereas just because you can see somebody's abs does not in any way indicate that they are at peak optimum health. And and quite often we've heard about 
with eating disorders that people are going through huge sacrifice to look that particular way, which I wouldn't equate to health either. But what of the medical profession then? When you're studying to become a doctor, how is is weight discussed or how is, is health discussed? It's, I mean, health health needs, I mean, it's been a bit of time since I was at medical school, but speaking to medical students who are there at the moment, it doesn't seem like very much has changed. But health is spoken in, in quite a linear way. And what I mean by that is that there's not very much spoken about in regards to the social determinants of health. And these are the things that, that define, actually define our health far more than anything we have impact over. So a lot of us think that our health you know, is down to what we do, right? It's down to the the choices that we make, the actions that we do, the stuff we eat, the exercise we do, the places we go. That's what we consider to be the be all and end all of our health. We believe we're in control of a lot of that stuff. And for some people, the the, the scary fact is actually that's complete nonsense. At most, it tends to be around 15, 20% of our health that we have some form of control over. And again, as we spoke earlier, the amount of control that we have is massively impacted by socioeconomics and and our status in society. But that other 80%, that is all down to where we were born. And we have no control over that. The area of the world in which we live, the the, the, um, the, the air quality that we're exposed to, the type of healthcare, the type of hospitals we live next to, the kind of schooling that we go to, the kind of food that we're exposed to, this stuff is incredibly important. People don't like that as a fact because it means that we don't have control and we like to be in control. We don't like to admit that we actually have very little impact over a lot of this kind of stuff. But that wasn't mentioned at all at medical school. And I I personally think that's a massive problem. And moving on from that, the reason this is all kind of interlinked is when we start believing that our health is under our control, that feeds into this rhetoric and this conversation about weight being under our control as well. Because as soon as we find any sort of evidence that might link um, weight to health, then we start treating weight as a personal responsibility. Because we treat health as a personal responsibility. We look down in general in society on people who aren't as what we would consider healthy as us. We look down on them and we, we, we make these assumptions that they just must not be trying as well, uh, as hard as us. They must not be doing the right things. And we therefore have this moral hierarchy over them. It's, it's just complete nonsense. It's not as overt as that at medical school, but that definitely, um, that, that definitely has filtered its way through the way that we are taught about things because it's how society views these topics. And we're not immune to that kind of stuff as doctors because, again, we're just people. Um, and, I, you know, I would argue it is incredibly important that we start changing some of that stuff because as much as we are just still people, we, are, we have a massive responsibility and a huge impact and authority around these topics because people trust us and listen to us. And so I think it's a big issue that we're learning about this stuff in a way that is lacking and we're leaving these establishments um, not much better than we than we came to them when it comes to these attitudes around health and weight. And I think that's why the title of your book is so important. Food is not medicine, because it, you're not saying that, you know, good food can't have a, an impact on you and your health. But that whole blame and shame idea that we have such control over our health it, it, it's counterintuitive in the end. It's counterproductive, rather. 
Um, mm. And, you know, you, you start talking about Justin Bieber and how you, you challenge um, something he said on social media about how his mental health had been much improved by his his diet and what he was eating. And you wanted to speak out for the people who were eating well and still suffering with their mental health, that it, it just takes that away. We, we put far too much control and, and shame at people that they're not doing enough and that they're less than. And, and I just think that impacts so badly on people's health. We, we've lost the ability to have nuance in these conversations. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, we, we don't have the ability to say, you know what, food might have an impact on how you feel. That is true. But we, we don't have those conversations. What we have is, oh, you're, you're not feeling too good. Oh, well, guess what? Here's this diet and you will feel better. It will cure how you feel. And, and that's a big problem because we're, we lose the ability to actually talk about this stuff in a way that is helpful. So it is good for people to know that, you know, our, our mental health and our physical health is interlinked. And so if we are able to and we have the privilege to improve our physical health with, with nutrition, then our mental health will often improve as well. But that doesn't mean that we can cure mental health disorders. It doesn't mean that you're magically going to fix, you know, a diagnosis of depression through food because that kind of stuff isn't there. But we can hold both of those things in tension. We can believe both of them without feeling like, you know, we have to throw one of them away. Food is important, but it's not medicine. And that is okay. And actually, I'd argue, and I do argue in the book, that's a really good thing. It's a really good thing that it's not medicine because we'd be in a much worse place. We have so much, as, as we mentioned earlier, so much food inequity already where people's access to and ability to buy food and eat a certain way is hugely hampered and hindered by their socioeconomic status and again if food really was truly medicine we'd be screwed because health would be even more defined than it already is by things like poverty and where you were born and where in the world you live and so we we should be really grateful for that kind of fact but it's something that is hard to accept and it's hard to hear because it goes against a lot of stuff that we get told and it goes against a lot of the the rhetoric that we get fed from a young age that you know, we can we can fix things if we just find the right diet. And it's it's a nice thing to hear. It feels right. For people who have the ability, it feels nice. It feels nice for the middle class that that would be true. But it's not. And you do get into the bigger topics in the book. Uh, we have to be very careful where we get our information from, even certain books, just because there's doctor at the front, you'd need to have a very specific doctor to be advising you on certain things let alone the people on social media who are claiming the keto diet has changed their life, as has celery juice. But one of the things at the start of the book is something small, and, and yet it's it's huge. And it was like an awakening moment for you. And it was talking about uh, low-cal ice cream and the claims on the side that because it's low-calorie, you can eat the whole thing. And you thought this was a fantastic thing, like so many of us did, until somebody challenged you and said, but why not just get normal full calorie ice cream just enjoy two or three scoops of that and have a healthier relationship with it and just move on with your life just eat the ice cream and move on without (laughs) all of this emotion and and stuff around it and I know it was a real stop in your tracks moment and I think that's something as well as all the change you're, you're talking about to make within the medical industry I think just we as people just need to improve our relationship throw out all of these messages we have and that's a truly healthy relationship with food. Well, we, we, and I'm sure many people would, would resonate listening to this. Anybody that's been on a diet 
will will um, remember just how just the feelings of restriction so those feelings of wanting to eat food because you're not allowing yourself to and those feelings of wanting to binge whether you've called it a binge or whether you've called it a cheat meal or whatever kind of word you've used to justify it those feelings are they're primal because our body needs food our body needs energy and you stop giving it to it and it and it goes boah this is not okay and those low low calorie ice creams i think are just a prime and perfect example of of this um being justified in terms of well let's find something i can binge on but that i can still believe is low calorie and won't make me fat and low calorie ice cream is 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 that in a tub which is why it sells so well which is why it does so well it it feeds on 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 this um the the atmosphere that diet culture has created um to to you know to to get our wallets because let's be honest it's incredibly expensive it's more expensive than the good stuff um (laughs) but uh yeah it was it was something that really challenged the way that i looked at food because i had never considered that a relationship with food was even a thing i had never been i'd never heard food talked about in that kind of way before i'd never um had anybody have those conversations with me and including that uh, this is what i was saying earlier about we need to have these conversations with nuance including those conversations go there's nothing actually inherently wrong with low calorie ice cream but why are you picking it what is it that makes you believe that it's better for you what is it that makes you believe that there is no psychological issue with binging the entire tub under the justification that it's not going to make you fat like how are those behaviors actually impacting you and how are they impacting your mental health? And then, you know, as a knockdown effect, your physical health as well. Um, and these, I think we need to have more of these conversations. Um, and I know you mentioned in terms of kind of, you know, comfort and and emotion. And I think emotional eating is a huge topic that we, that we shy away from. Um, accepting is actually okay sometimes. Um, we talk about emotional eating as something that is, inherently evil because and again you might be sensing a theme here because it will make you fat right because if you are eating lots if you're you know helping your emotions with food you're just going to get fat and oh if i get fat i'm going to be unhealthy although it's not really unhealthy we're worried about it's more what other people are going to think of us and so we we demonize this using food to help our emotions but we have lots of different coping mechanisms for our feelings and that's not a bad thing some people rely on some of them more than others. The issue is when they become maladaptive. So if you only have one coping mechanism, if food is the only thing that you use to cope with your emotions, that might become maladaptive in the long term. But it shouldn't be demonized as something that is never allowed because we are very complex creatures. We're complex as humans. And ha- removing some of these coping mechanisms is only going to be detrimental to you in the long term and it also puts too much power on some of them you know imagine what happens when food actually is really great with emotions food can bring so much joy food can have so much stuff attached to it if you stop allowing yourself to use that as a coping mechanism it then holds so much more power it's like when you tell a child they're not allowed something all they want is that we, we like to think that we're better than that because we're adults now but we're not it's the mm. same kind of thing mm. Um, and so we need to start accepting that again, that actually it's okay and it's it's normal to use food to help cope with emotions. And once we start accepting that, we can start using it 
in in its place and what it should be for and with other things rather than it being the only thing that we have. Well, Joshua, you say you wish there had been a book like this when you were younger. I wish there was a book like this when I was younger, but it is here now and this conversation is happening more and more and I love it. The book is called Food is Not Medicine, Challenge Nutribolics and Escape the Diet Trap. Dr. Joshua Woolrich, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks as ever to my producer, John Fardy, and to Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. And stay tuned to News Talk all this week for your chance to win 20K. I will see you next Sunday.